Well, good morning, everybody. I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. And as you turn, let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are a great and mighty God, worthy of our worship and our praise. God, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. And we pray now that as we come under it, that you would continue to encourage us and to change us, that you would convict us where we need convicting. And in line with this text, that you would bolster our belief and our faith all the more. We pray for our good and your glory. Amen. Have you ever had a mountaintop experience, a spiritual mountaintop experience, only to come crashing back down to earth with difficulty or struggle? When we talk about a mountaintop experience, we're referring to an instance in life that has a great high, a great emotion to it. When we talk about spiritual mountaintop experiences, it must, it's most likely something like an experience in your Christian life where you sense God's presence uniquely. Or when you are used by God to do something that you didn't think it was possible to do. Or when you experience something that just creates an overwhelming sense of awe and wonder about who God is and an excitement to follow him. I wonder if you can think about a mountaintop experience in your life, or maybe for some of us, many mountaintop experiences, spiritually speaking. But sometimes our mountaintop experiences are followed by great difficulty. In fact, Billy Graham once said, mountaintops are for views and inspiration but fruit is grown in the valleys. This was certainly true for the disciples of Jesus. They had just literally been on top of the mountain, at least Peter, James, and John. And what they witnessed was Jesus's glory during the transfiguration. But That came crashing down as they descended the mountain back into reality. In fact, while they were on the mountain, it was so great that Peter did not want it to end. He was beholding glory. And so he offered to build a tent for Jesus and for Moses and Elijah so that they could stay there and they could experience that mountaintop and all of its glory forever. But eventually, reality cuts in. And as they came back down the mountain, difficulty and reality hit them pretty hard. And that's where we pick up in Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 14. So follow with me as we read. It says this, And when they, they being Jesus and Peter, James, and John, came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw them, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. 
And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has he been, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the, for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why, we, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Glory and power had just been displayed to the three disciples, Peter, James, and John. They were certainly discouraged to learn that Jesus, the Messiah, the chosen one, the one they had devoted to following, would suffer and would die, and that in following him, they would suffer as well. And as the questions swirled through their mind of whether or not it was worth it to continue to follow him, God peeled back the veil. And he showed them a glimpse of the glory of the sun, a glimpse of his divinity, a glimpse of eternity. Moses and Elijah were present at the transfiguration, talking with Jesus about suffering and death and resurrection that he would endure to completely fulfill all that the Old Testament law and prophets had accomplished. And the three disciples witnessed glory and were uplifted and they were encouraged, but now it was time to come back down the mountain with a willingness to suffer with and for Jesus that they too might obtain glory. And as they came down the mountain, it says that they came upon the other nine disciples and reality smacked them right in the face. Because verses 14 through 18 paint this picture. Jesus and the three others walk into the town, witnessing the other nine disciples arguing with the scribes. The crowd had gathered all around to jeer them. This was the religious equivalent of a good old street fight. A man had a son who was possessed by a demon. He brought him into town. 
They tried to find Jesus to cast out the demon, but in his stead, the other nine disciples attempted the exorcism, and the picture was graphic. The boy was mute. He'd be thrown onto the ground in his seizure-like activities. He'd foam at the mouth. He'd become rigid. And the boy, as a result, you can imagine, would be quite disfigured. A shell of himself. And this had been going on for years. I love the observation that Kent Hughes makes about this when he observes that this is exactly the type of thing that Satan does. That Satan endeavors to destroy the image of God in humankind. He takes what God has made beautiful and he disfigures it. And it goes to war with it. And he tries to undo it. This is a glimpse into the cosmic battle of God versus Satan that is playing out in humanity right before our very eyes. And he does so here in a full-on assault of this boy. Other times, he takes what is beautiful and tries to disfigure it. God's image in us as we give Satan footholds in our lives through our conscious decisions to engage in ongoing sin. And that is what is happening. I mean, why is it that serious addiction to drugs or alcohol physically changes the appearance of a person? I mean, yes, without a doubt, biology is at play, but it's also the destroying of the image of God that he made that person to look like. Why is it that when someone is engaged in serious sexual sin in an ongoing way, the physical appearance of that person actually changes. They develop a different look, a different countenance, a different way of interacting. Satan is trying to destroy the image of God in them. Or why is it that for the one who dabbles in demonic spiritual practices, how they seem to have a cold, distant, almost vacant expression on their face? It's because Satan is trying to destroy the image of God in them. There is a cosmic war that's happening between God and Satan. It's being played out in the human experience every single day. And here, this demonic possession of the little boy shows it. And so upon the failure of the disciples to cast out the demon, the scribes, the religious leaders, they saw their chance they began to publicly chastise the disciples so everybody could hear it. Presumably not only for their failure to cast out the demon, but also because they had hitched their wagon to Jesus. And so you can hear them yelling things like, we told you that his power is limited and so is yours. We told you he's a fake and a fraud. You are following a false prophet. And that's why you don't have any power. And the crowd is now gathered around and jeering them on as they go. Jesus approaches with Peter, James, and John. The gaze of the crowd shifts. They part like the Red Sea as he enters right into the middle of the situation. And he diagnoses the problem. Look at the second half of verse 18. In 19, and how he says the problem is unbelief. The man says, I asked your disciples to cast it out, 
but they were not able. And Jesus answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Jesus is brought to his wit's end. It's not very often that he expresses this kind of exasperation, but his frustration of a faithless generation is not directed to the one that you might expect. You see, the scribes, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they've all already displayed a lack of faith in Jesus as the Messiah. He's not directing this to them. He's directing this frustration with the man, the father himself, and even more pointedly with the disciples. I mean, it wasn't long ago that Jesus had sent the disciples out to do this very thing. Just a couple chapters back in chapter 6, verse 7, it says that he called the 12 and he began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. And so they did go out and it worked. It says in verse 13, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. These disciples were doing the exact thing that Jesus had asked them to do. To be the frontline emissaries of the kingdom of God that's expanding on earth in the midst of this realm. And they'd done it. Jesus was up on the mountain. They continued to do what they were supposed to do while he was there. They didn't just go home and kick back and have a good old time. But now they were unable to do the same. And Jesus diagnoses the problem. It's unbelief. It appears that the disciples had started to rely on their own power to perform the works of God rather than the power of Jesus. They'd learned the process. They exercised courage. They engaged the need that was right in front of them. Their motives were good, but there was no power because they relied on themselves. And Jesus indicates that self-reliance constitutes a form of unbelief. One pastor tells a story that is probably a story that many of us could tell. He says when he started his new church in Los Angeles, he found that he was overwhelmed with pressure and stress and he was working 70 hours a week and his wife would ask him to take a day off and he would say, I can't. He writes, I wasn't sleeping at night, so I started taking sleeping pills. And when the church was about a year old, I woke up in the middle of the night and had this strange sense that God was laughing at me. And as I lay in bed, I wondered, why is God laughing at me? It would take me five years before I finally figured it out. And here's how it happened, he says. When we moved into our current house, I saved the heaviest piece of furniture for last, the desk that would be in my office. And as I was pushing and pulling the desk with all of my might, my four-year-old son came over and asked if he could help. And so together, 
we started sliding it across the floor. He was pushing, pulling, and grunting as we inched the thing along. And after a few minutes, he said, my son stopped pushing. He turned around, he looked at me, and he said, Dad, you're in my way. And then he tried to push the desk by himself. And of course, it didn't budge. And then I realized that he thought he was actually doing all the work. And I couldn't help but laugh. And as I laughed, I recalled the middle of the night incident and I realized why God was laughing at me. I thought I was doing all the work. I thought I was pushing the desk. And I know that's ridiculous, but instead of recognizing God's power and strength, I started to think that it all depended on me. Friends, there's a lesson there for anyone who endeavors to serve the Lord in any capacity in your life. The temptation for self-reliance is so natural. It comes upon us so subtly. We get comfortable in our skill. We think we're pretty good and we lose that sense of complete dependence on God to do the work of God. This can happen to the Sunday school teacher, the one who knows the lesson, who engages the kids and is loved by them, the one who can pull it off but in the end, there's no power. This can happen to the preacher. Maybe a preacher who has a good command of the English language, who knows to pull on the heartstrings of those who listen, who can hold the room together in his message, but in the end, he's relying on his skill instead of God's power. This can happen to anyone who shares their faith with their friend or their coworker, you've memorized the two ways to live. You've gone the extra step of being able to draw all the boxes. You know the story of God's reign and our rebellion and the kingship of Christ and his saving work through faith and judgment that will come and eternity that will follow. And you can communicate it well, but you rely on your memorization rather than Jesus' power to save. You see, self-reliance constitutes a type of unbelief. And Jesus indicates this unbelief has no spiritual power no matter how good your motives are. And so he offers a solution. The solution is belief, and it's a particular type of belief. The boy is brought to Jesus. The demon within him convulses with a display of power and intense hatred for Jesus. The thought of Jesus drawing him out and restoring the boy compels the demon to rage. The father's anguish for his son as he witnesses this must be profound. The boy is again rolling on the ground, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus is not oblivious to the man's pain. 
He doesn't need further detail to do what he's going to do, but he asks for the history from the man anyway. And he does so, so he can engage him right at the point of belief. Look at verse 21. It says that he asks the father, how long has this been happening? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. The man proclaimed, if you can do anything, help us. I mean, the man took the boy to Jesus for a reason. He believed that he could do something to help them. That's why he came in the first place. But now his faith was fragile. He had just witnessed the failure of the disciples to cast the boy out. He had just heard the ridicule of the crowd and the scribes. The man's faith was hanging on by a thread based on what he had just witnessed. It was fleeting. And now the thought had entered his mind, maybe Jesus can't do this. Maybe nobody can. Jesus turns it right back around on the man very quickly. He says, if you can... All things are possible for the one who believes. It's as if he is saying that it's not about my ability. Of course, I can. It's not if I can. It's do you believe? And now we start to get to the point. Faith that Jesus can do anything leads him to accomplish what he has promised. Faith that Jesus can do anything leads him to accomplishing what he has promised. And if you're not careful here, you can get in pretty dicey territory pretty quickly. Maybe some of us have been there before. Because this verse is probably one of the most abused verses in the New Testament. People in the word faith movement or certain charismatic circles or prosperity gospel circles have taken this verse to mean something a little bit more or different than it actually means. They, they tend to take it as something like, if you believe God enough, God will do whatever you want. Or if you have strong enough faith, God will give you whatever you want. And just that little twisting has profoundly terrible 
consequences. A friend of mine once told me a story about the death of his mother. She wasn't advanced in her years when she was diagnosed with a very serious but treated, treatable illness. And as she deliberated what to do, the pastor at her church quoted to her Mark chapter 9, all things are possible for the one who believes. And so, with the support of her church family, reinforcing the message, the woman decided that she didn't need the treatment. She would just believe enough, and then God would heal her. Time went on. Her son begged her to pursue the treatment, that faith was not incompatible with modern medicine, with using our minds, with taking advantage of all the common graces that God has given to us. But the woman resisted. She insisted that she just needed to believe more and that God would come through. And finally, having the illness ravage her body, lying on her deathbed, still seeking hope for her healing, she died. And a son needlessly lost his mother. And a woman died thinking that she didn't have enough faith to be healed. That she wasn't strong enough. She wasn't good enough. She didn't believe enough. And that is what happens when this verse is twisted or abused. I can't tell you how many of those stories I heard. Uh, just in between services, I had somebody come up to me and say, I'm an epileptic, and I've had friends use this verse to tell me to stop taking my medication. It happens all the time. And so what's the problem with that way of thinking? Why isn't Jesus saying that? Well, the problem was that Jesus never promised the woman that he would heal her. His promises are found in his word. His promises are displayed in his interactions with people. And her expectation went beyond what he had promised to do. And Jesus doesn't explicitly promise to the father, I'm going to heal this boy right now. But he actually does indicate that he is going to act through his words. The father is there. He hears... Jesus is there, he hears the father's story, and his words indicate that he's going to act in a very simple phrase, bring him to me. Faith, that Jesus can do anything, leads to him accomplishing what he's promised. And the tension is, of course, that we know God performs miracles and we know that he performs miracles that he hasn't foretold us in the scriptures. But God does give us clarity about the categories in which he will provide for people and for provision. He will perform spiritual miracles 
in saving people. He will perform spiritual miracles in revival. He will perform spiritual miracles by giving the gifts of repentance and faith. And he will do physical miracles that God actually does institute the casting out of demons and the healing of sick among them. But he doesn't always do them. He doesn't tell us to whom he is going to do them for. So the question is, the question of expectation as it relates to belief. And what Jesus is driving at is this. Do you believe that he can do them? Do you believe that Jesus can do whatever he wants? Whenever he wants, do I believe that his power is sufficient to accomplish his purposes? That's what's being probed at. Do you believe he can do anything? That he really is that powerful? If so, then we trust that he will apply that power in the right way and in the right time to fulfill his promises and accomplish his purposes. And sometimes that means he's gonna miraculously heal. And I believe he can. And other times it means that he's gonna allow us to suffer. And I believe in his divine plan that is actually for our good. What he's getting at is the inverse. He's getting at the struggle that we often have, that we're tempted with to believe that Jesus can't do anything. That he's so far off and distant that he doesn't care or that he can't do it. That it's not worth asking. That the task is too hard. That the disease is too advanced. That the person is too lost. Just as there's a sin of over-application, there's an even more common sin of under-application. But not for the man in the midst of the struggle. I love his response. It says that he cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. His fledgling faith was an honest faith. He was struggling based on what he had just seen, based on a lifetime of experience, based on meeting Jesus. He is struggling but he lets the Savior know. And it's important to recognize that in his response, we see that it was not a matter of the strength of his belief on a scale of one to 10. As if somehow, if he just got over the threshold of five, then the genie in the bottle would grant the wish. No, no, no. If that was the case, the son would be lost. His faith wasn't strong, but his faith was there. It was a matter of belief that Jesus could do anything. Guys, I, don't, I can't tell you how many times I've prayed that very prayer in my own life. I believe, help my unbelief. There's a battle that's going on in here. I trust you. I believe you. It's not lining up with what I'm seeing or feeling or experiencing. Help my unbelief. 
And he does. And he does. And verse 25 tells us that Jesus casts out the demon. The demon left the boy. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. The boy is restored. The crowd must have cheered. The vilified disciples were relieved. And Jesus is shown as all-powerful yet again. Faith, belief, that Jesus can do anything leads to him accomplishing what he's promised to do. And there's a connection with the gospel here because it's that same type of faith or belief that Jesus has the power to cast out demons or has the power to heal the sick that is found in believing that Jesus has the power to forgive your sins and restore you to God. Do you believe that Jesus can do anything? That includes forgiving you and cleansing you and bringing you back into a relationship with the eternal holy God of the universe. No matter how far away from God you've wandered, no matter how terrible your choices have been, no matter how addicted you became, no matter how hardened or cynical you are, no matter what the depth of the evil is that you have secretly engaged and dabbled in, he promises to forgive those who put their faith in him and he has the power to do it. He has the power to restore you to God. Do you believe he can do anything? He can. He can forgive even you. The lesson is learned, the boy is healed. The disciples are still confused. And it says in verse 28, that when they had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And that might seem complicated at first, but it's really not that complicated because prayer is an expression of dependence and belief. That's what prayer is. The disciples were relieved, but they were deflated. They'd done what Jesus told them to do. They preached the gospel. They cast out demons, but this time there was no power. Why? Because they had mistakenly come to believe that they could control this ability to perform exorcisms without depending on God. And prayer is the expression of that dependence and belief they forgot to pray. God's power is his. He can do anything. We can't control it. But he does allow us to access it. And this happens through prayer. Self-reliance is the enemy of spiritual power. Complete dependence is the way that God allows us to access it. And so, how is your prayer life? (laughs) You want to know how you're doing in dependence on God? Just take a little temperature check on what you pray about. How often you pray. How often do you express reliance on God? Or do you fall into the trap like we all do again and again and again of self-reliance? If I just work harder, if I just do more, I'll figure this out. It will all come together sooner or later. Don't forget to pray. 
faith that Jesus can do anything leads to him accomplishing what he's promised to do. You know, I'm told that if you are inside the cockpit of a departing airplane, just as it took off from the runway, you would hear the co-pilot or the captain call out V1. This is the phrase that represents that they've passed the point of no return. There's enough lift in the airplane for the nose to come off the ground. And as the plane accelerates toward the end of the runway, the pilot must decide if the plane is moving fast enough and it's safe to take off. And the speed is determined pre-flight based on air pressure and temperature and wind speed and the weight of the airplane. And the pilot maintains a hold on the throttle as the plane approaches V1 speed so that he or she can abort the takeoff if something goes wrong. However, after V1, the plane must take off. I think as Christians, we should have that sort of V1 commitment in our walk with Christ. That's what Jesus is displaying to his disciples. Once you've placed your faith in him, once you've started to follow him, once you've believed that he is going to forgive you of your sins as your savior, in one very wonderful way, you've reached the point of no return. We believe and we live in the belief that Jesus can do anything. There are no limits on his power. For the Christian then, We simply adjust our attitude, our perspective. We apply full throttle and there's no return. Because faith that he can do anything leads him to accomplish the very things that he's promised to do. So when it looks impossible, you know who to trust. Let's pray. Father, we relate so often to the struggles of your disciples. We thank you for showing yourself strong and true yet again. We ask, God, that you would indeed bolster our faith, that you would help us out of self-reliance, that we would depend upon your power in all things, and may we experience that power all the more as we do. We thank you how that power is going to be displayed in just a couple minutes in baptisms. And we look forward to hearing how you are glorified in the lives of young men and women today. Amen.